This is Things That Really Matter, a podcast by Global Multidisciplinary Engineers Kundal that is dedicated to creating new and innovative solutions for the built environment and driving the agenda towards a more sustainable future. Join us as we discuss the challenges and changes that affect the built environment around the world with the brightest minds in our industry. So we're uh, super excited to be here um, in one of Kundal's first uh, podcast episodes and really excited to explore how we use the format of the podcast to discuss and really dig deeper into some of the real issues sort of facing the industry today. So today's focus is on operational energy performance of buildings, sharing lessons learned from Australia's experience with the Neighbours Rating Scheme and how we can improve building operation in the UK and Australia more broadly. So I'm here today with my colleague Nick Stocker from Adela uh, Kundal's Adelaide office. Uh, Nick's an associate uh, with Kundal and Lee's Adelaide office, um, and he's been with Kundal since 2008 and part of the sustainability team since then. Um, but within his role, he's been primarily, I think, focused on building improvement and energy efficiency projects um, with, I think it's fair to say, Nick, a very keen interest in the application of the Neighbours suite of tools. Nick, you're a Neighbours auditor, a Neighbours trainer, and a member of the Neighbours uh, Australia Independent Design Review Panel for Neighbours Commitment Agreements but also the uh, first GreenStar Performance Accredited Professional and also just re uh, recently appointed as a GreenStar Assessor for the Performance Tool working on behalf of the Green Building Council of Australia. So I think it's fair to say, Nick, you're probably a, a good person to be here talking about Neighbours UK. I'll do my best. Um, so thanks, thanks for the intro, Jen, and it's probably only fair that I introduce you back. So um, you've already heard uh, Jen speak so far, but so... She's a senior sustainability and building physics engineer in our London office, in Cundall's London office. Seven years of experience in Australia. Um, so you're working on design, simulation, delivery, handover and monitoring of neighbours rated buildings. So you've, you've kind of um, seen neighbours from the start to the end on plenty of buildings, which is good. Uh, so you've been in the UK for three years now and you, you're pretty focused on operational energy simulation for UK projects. And that sort of correlates to the design for performance methodology, which is now going on over there. Um, you're also pretty heavily involved in supporting projects targeting net zero carbon in operation. And um, I've yeah, just recently heard from, from you directly that you are, you're now a member of the, uh, the UK's equivalent for, um, uh, I guess, design for performance independent design review panel. So congratulations. Um, you can now <laughs> review, independently review uh, Neighbours UK design models and validate them. Uh, and uh, also one of your first jobs in the industry was working for the Neighbours team in Australia. So you've actually come from the Neighbours admin side as well. So I think uh, between the two of us, we've got Neighbours uh, covered. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, it's fair to say it's a topic that's, you know, very close to my heart and I'm sure in your case as well. Definitely. Um, so uh, we hosted a webinar back in February about Neighbours UK. And so today's discussion really jumps off from where we left on that webinar. Um, for anybody who is listening who missed the webinar, um, the webinar is available on Kundal's global YouTube channel, and you can find a link in the podcast episode notes if you'd like to go back and revisit that. So Neighbours itself is a rating system that uses a six-star rating scale to rate building annual energy performance against each other. The idea is if you actually measure and reward performance, you incentivize making improvements to performance. And our webinar really looked at how that scheme, how the scheme itself works, but also how it's used in Australia to really drive improvements to performance. 
And having UK neighbours come to the UK is such an enormous opportunity to close the performance gap in our buildings. And, you know, Australia has really demonstrated that that's possible with a significant track record in energy savings driven by application of the neighbours scheme. But I'll say that, you know, look, since the last webinar, even though it was only, I think, three months ago now, so much has changed in the UK. So obviously the uh, independent design review panel um, has been announced, as, as Nick mentioned. Uh, the uh, BRE have taken over ownership of the scheme and released their pricing model for each of the different sort of aspects of the scheme. Neighbours Assessor Training will very soon be available. And SIPSI are also collaborating on advanced simulation training under development for design teams wanting to employ those detailed simulation techniques to deliver high neighbours ratings. Uh, neighbours is also um, in the UK flagging the intent to develop out tenancy ratings, which is another key part of uh, the Australian tool as well. Um, and then I guess on that, Nick, I think it's been an exciting time for Neighbours in Australia as well. Yeah, it definitely has. There's been a lot that's, um, I mean, so every, every year they do an annual report, which you can download on the website, and it sort of show, shows things like how um, the average performance of a, of a building that's been rated kind of continues to improve as it continues to get rated. And therefore, the average star rating for building types is always sort of going up. So average performance is improving. Um, but they've actually, I mean, this will probably resonate more with, um, I guess, listeners in Australia, but the way that Neighbours assigns its star ratings is based on what they call a benchmarking factor, which is sort of within the tool. So it's kind of a, you know, a figure that gets produced within the Neighbours tool when you plug in all of the information. And it's, it's emissions, essentially it's emissions per, so carbon emissions per square metre, which is normalised based on where the building's located, what, what the building type is and how it, how it operates. But the, the way it kind of previously calculated emissions was based on historic uh, emissions factors from the utility grid for electricity and gas that have have no meaning for today's figures. So, so really, it was it was presenting emissions per square meter based on I think 2010 or 2012 emissions factors. Whereas in, in actual fact, Australia has got relatively green electricity now in a lot of states, but we use a lot of wind power and solar. So it's just what what they've done in the neighbours tools. They've now what well, they're now rolling out an adjustment of the emissions factors to be reflective of what the current utility electricity and gas grids are. So it'll, it'll still have the same star rating bandwidths, but it's just going to more accurately reflect actual emissions, which just means that, I guess, as a customer of Neighbours, you might get more useful information about your building because it's more reflective of its actual uh, carbon impact. So I think that's, that's a, as far as Neighbours in Australia goes, that's a fairly big change. Yeah, and if I just jump in here and share the UK perspective, uh, Neighbours UK is actually based on primary energy. Um, because obviously in, in uh, the UK, we've seen a lot of problems in our own building regulations introduced by using a carbon factor um, with the you know rapid decarbonisation of the grid in the UK. So thankfully, um, that's one example of the lessons learned from um, Australia in applying the tool in the UK. It means that over here, yes, there will be some changes in the primary energy factor over the coming years, but it'll be a lot more gradual than what we're seeing in Australia at the moment. Yeah, I think that's a good starting point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think, um, I guess building on that, I mean, we we sort of collaborated on a couple of independent design review um, projects for um, projects in the UK. And one of the comments that you made as one of the, um, as part of one of the independent design reviews that you'd done for us is that the design really reminded you of early stage designs in Australia. Um, I suppose to kick off, two questions. Um, what in particular did you notice? And what in Australia sort of what changed uh, between the early days and now? Yeah, so okay, so I remember. So there's one particular report I do remember where I think 
Um, because you've got to remember that with a, for a design review, you're trying to demonstrate in one of these reports that the design um, will sort of use a certain amount of energy per annum, and then that equates to a certain neighbor's rating. So you're trying to realistically predict how much energy your building's going to use. And obviously the, the features of the design and how they contribute to that. And I, I, I looked at the report and it sort of reminded me of a um, like an idealized modeling report, which might be used for like a, another sort of benchmarking tool or, you know, code compliance or something. So it's very focused on certain areas of, um, you know, that, for example, the, the air conditioning, um, but it didn't, it didn't really sort of drill down into how, how they'd modeled, how the air conditioning was going to be controlled. Um, also things like they didn't like they didn't allow for things like the, the energy use of the lifts clearly um, even the lighting wasn't like the, the approach to how they'd kind of come up with a figure for how much energy the lighting systems are going to use per annum it just wasn't clear um, it was very HVAC focused it looked look, looked idealized and really when you're trying to review this you're trying to you, you're really trying to assess whether you know this is a realistic prediction of energy use in operation and I couldn't help but think this report um, was more representative of, of, a, of an ideal scenario. And they used, they used a lot of default values for operational profiles as well. So that just means that they're, they're picking out, um, you know, the start and finish times of occupancy and the start and finish times of lighting controls based on, you know, default as opposed to what might actually be happening in the building, which, yeah, I mean, that, that's a, a bit of a red flag for me is, is you're trying to, you know, you're trying to, predict what this building's going to do and using default values is, is kind of saying, well, we don't, we don't really know. So I yeah. definitely noticed that. I think there was, there was two parts to your question, Gemma, you're also asking what, what we've sort of learned. Yeah. What Australia. do you think it was in Australia that, that changed? I think like in, I guess in, in a word, it was really just the recognition that for neighbors modeling, we're trying to predict actual energy consumption. And it's not, you know, that's, that's at the end of the day, that's what you're trying to do. And it really comes down to controlling and how you sort of predict controls, um, the zoning, um, user behavior, and just those little kind of nuances of the way the users are actually going to use the space and how that's captured in the model. And I think that the modeling report, which is what I see and what you'll see, really has to talk to that stuff and how that stuff's captured um, as opposed to just sort of telling me lots and lots of stuff about one particular air conditioning unit that I don't care that much about. <laughs> yeah, I sort of understand what you mean. Perhaps a relic of the um, their design for compliance culture that's been a bit endemic in the UK over the last kind of yeah. decade. Yeah, it's, it's totally understandable. And we were in the same position like 15, 20 years ago as well. And it's it's just, a, I think the, the skill set just has to kind of adjust and, you know, move out of that space a bit when they model for neighbours, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And then I guess thinking back then to your most successful projects, what stands out about those projects or one project in particular in that sense? Sounds corny to say it, um, and I feel like everyone says it, but it's like it's collaborative approach. So every, everyone that's involved, um, yeah, they're literally collaborating to try and achieve this outcome. So it's it's that the whole approach of understanding what's required, understanding that it does kind of cross disciplines a little bit, crosses roles and responsibilities a little bit, and everyone sort of has to kind of take that little step into maybe space that's a little bit uncomfortable, and really kind of try to contribute in a in a practical manner. So I think that's the, the number one, like I guess key factor for a successful project is a collaborative modeling team, collaborative engineering team and a collaborative construction team that all know they have a little bit of influence on the outcome of how buildings can operate. And then also being able to engage with the operator if you can, if that's, if that's part of the project. 
and certainly projects that do have you know a heavily engaged operator facility manager owner whoever it is um, are going to be in a good position to be able to actually perform well and perform sort of in a way that sort of maybe matches the modeling um, so that they can achieve the targets uh, I think it's probably fair that I ask you the same question, Jen. So what, what do you think sort of, um, I guess, is, is a successful project or has been a successful project and what's worked? Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose I'd echo your comment just around that that culture. Um, I think some of the most successful projects I've worked on maybe are not the ones with the biggest budget or even the most um, ambitious targets, but they're the ones where you know, you're seeing design manager, project manager at every meeting, development manager at every meeting, and it's clear right up front that whether that commitment is neighbours five star, neighbours six star, that it's fully, truly embedded in the brief for the project and it's a key performance requirement for the project. And you see that culture from the start of the design phase right through construction with the construction manager being again focused on the performance outcome and that filters all the way down through your supply chain through your subcontractors getting involved um, as you say with the facilities management team and you can really see that that attitude carry through that 12-month monitoring and verification process where everybody is looking for how they can do their part to improve performance. The less successful projects are, I think, the ones where people are spending a lot of time looking at what their scope is or what their role is or what the contract says. But once you can create that, that real culture of performance aligned all the way through the design team and at every level of your team, you can really bring together a focus on delivering performance. And I think that's where the projects that I see have been really successful. And I'd say that certainly, I mean, obviously we get involved at design stage a lot and it's it's when we have a very clear brief and a very clear direction from the client around what that star rating is, that's often a lot more powerful than it being a particularly ambitious star rating target, sort of in my, in my opinion, I guess. So you think in terms of, you know, if a client wants to achieve a, a neighbour's outcome, then to sort of, to instigate some of this stuff, to actually make some of this stuff happen, do you think it just comes down to being like, like how do you, as from, if you put yourself in a client's shoes, how, how do you make this happen? Like just deploy the right people or like, is it just be clear in your mind what you're asking for? Do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely, it's definitely a case of being clear in your mind what, what it is you're asking for and what your target is and ensuring that that target is sufficiently realistic for what, the other drivers of that project might be, be they um, tenant or quality drivers or be they cost drivers. But everything throughout that project needs to be aligned to deliver that performance outcome. Mm -hmm. But then from there, I think a, a big part of that is the way the project's structured rather than looking looking to, you know, split every scope out to, you know, the, the lowest fee, uh, fee proposal yeah. that you get. Having that collaborative team, often having that sit within a multidisciplinary group or at least a group that potentially have worked together before who can really collaborate to drive towards that outcome rather mm. than having these kind of scope gaps and over-specialisation and, and sort of making a bit of a mess of it that way. I mean, would you agree with that, Nick? Or? Well, I mean, I, I would. I mean, I think it's 
yeah, like over specialization is an interesting one because I think that that kind of you, you get sort of a little bit too stuck in your silo, maybe to kind of um, step out a bit. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think I would generally agree with that. Um, I mean, with yeah, with like the, I guess the better projects that I can think of that have have sort of achieved the targets comfortably, they've also they've got clients that. Um, I said it before a bit, but the clients that can and are able to involve um, representatives of the operational team early on, even in the design phase, um, that, that's that's always been useful. That's always helped this process along. And then, I mean, even when it comes to commissioning a building and, and sort of handing over a building as well, you're pretty fortunate if you've got a um, like a good contractor that's able to then sort of t- understand the design requirements, understand the modelling report, and then really take on sort of the commissioning side of that and understand what they're trying to achieve with the, uh, you know, the, the metering side of things and the, the building tuning side of things as well. So yeah, but I guess good, good project management, um, collaborative team, uh, the right attitude and a, a, a client that sort of, yeah, can, can sort of appreciate what, what's required and align their brief to, to really suit it. It's probably what we need, I think. Yeah. And then I think, you know, looking at the industry more broadly, you know, I look back to my time in Australia and I really, I really felt that there was a really strong sort of knowledge and experience sharing culture, whether that was driven by, you know, yourselves on the independent design review panel or the industry just kind of culture more broadly. How do you think or what lessons do you think the UK can learn in terms of making sure that those lessons are not just focused towards the the particular project team but diffuse throughout the industry? That's a good question. I mean, I think the the independent design review process probably taught some lessons early on. So I think uh, having having a mandated independent review of a um, modelling report for for a neighbours commitment agreement um, pushed pushed people along, pushed the industry along a bit in the first few years. But I don't I don't feel like that's doing anything anymore. Well, I mean, it's still serving its purpose. Like I still think it's right to have. Have a have this independently reviewed, so you can re- review like move yourself from a target rating to a design reviewed target rating. Um, but I don't that, I don't think that's necessarily upskilling the industry anymore because the reports that I see these days are like they they tick all the boxes. They they know what they're doing. Like the industry knows what we're doing here now pretty well when it comes to um, commitment agreement, neighbours modelling. I mean, there's still there's still obviously going to be little issues, but. So I think I think the, the independent design review process helped to begin with, but we've sort of cut, we've got to a point now. Um, I, I mean, there, there, there is sort of, you know, there, there's a bit of training, a bit of, I mean, neighbours do do a bit of training and there's, a bit, you know, industry sessions with the ERA and SIPSI and that sort of thing. But I think, um, yeah, I think it's, I mean, we've, we've, we've learned the lessons here just through projects as well. Um, so, I mean, yeah, there's, no, there's no silver bullet to this. Um, I, don't, I don't know. So, I mean, is there any thoughts from yourself on that? Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, I think it's a really interesting one. And I think the UK, obviously, the independent design review panel, I think is going to have a really important role to play in that knowledge share. But then, as you say, sort of the industry events, the, the SIPSI um, uh, events, uh, communities, working groups, I think is also going to be another really big, important part. But I also... I also think a really key part of that, I mean, almost going back to what you're sort of saying around taking ownership of the, the modelling work and, and making sure it's accurate, is that there really does need to be a level of leadership, I think, from individuals at all stages in that in the process, rather than, you know, the test I always sort of ask myself is, what can I do today to make 
this model or this design or this review as best as it possibly can be um, before I start thinking about what other people can do to make things better. And I, I think that kind mm -hmm. of that individual leadership is going to be potentially really, really important. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess I probably would chip in as well to say that it's like we've we've kind of as consultants we've learned here to um, sort of scope this correctly as well. So I mean, in a way, like a there's a role for on a, on this on a project that's targeting a neighbours rating. There's almost a role for a neighbours integrator where they're kind of. They, they understand the sort of the administrative ins and outs of neighbours. They understand the modelling side of things, and they 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 kind of in, in the initial design stages, making sure that there's no um, little sort of stumbling blocks going on. Um, but I think yeah, all, all of the sort of the, the tier one consultants here know what they have to now allow for to do this properly, and it's not it's not sort of hugely onerous or anything like that. They just they, we just now know. So so that that's kind of a key. Like yeah, and I think you know. From the UK perspective, I think we're sort of embarking upon potentially quite a painful period. Um, I mean, when you think about it, the UK is sort of where Australia was 10 or 15 years ago. And some of the challenges we're facing, I'd say, are almost systemic. Things like um, even just lack of monitoring data to feed back into, monitor, to feed back into models. Um, so, I mean, obviously we've spoken about this before and I, I sort of, I know this reflects your early experience in Australia, doesn't it? It does, yeah. I mean, yeah, the lack of data was a big issue to begin with and like, yeah, I mean, there's no two ways about it. We have, you have to set these projects up so that you can actually sort of understand how they're operating so that they can be tuned to achieve the target. Um, I mean, you can't manage what you can't, you know, not measuring whatever the, the saying is. Mm. So, that, I mean, yeah, that's... That's only going to come with time. I mean, again, it's not onerous, but it's it's just the it's the subtleties of just understanding that. Well, pro probably what I'll say here is that you can like with with neighbours, you, you can more or less rate any office building, but to rate it accurately and get a good result, you need to be able to ensure that you can exclude the stuff. So exclude the energy use of the stuff that's not the office. So that's probably the first thing that um, probably needs to be well understood. And I, I mean, I'm sure you guys understand that quite well over there. But it's just it's uh, an example would be you have a, a central thermal plant that serves an office building, but that office building also has, say, like a laboratory within it. And the laboratory, you know, for all intents and purposes, from the neighbor's perspective, can be excluded from the rating. So you've got this one central plant that serves an office and a laboratory. You need to be able to meter the central plant so you understand its actual energy use, so electricity and gas, et cetera. But then you also need to know how much of that energy is going to the laboratory so that you can then exclude that portion of the total energy use from the, the office rating, the neighbours for offices rating, and then you'll get an accurate result. But if you don't have that metering, you can still rate the building. You're just going to have an office with a penalty that is the energy use of a whole laboratory. So that, that's kind of what you're up against. Any, anything's rateable, but um, to get a good rating, you sometimes have to be a little bit careful about how, how you capture and gather data. And then this extends completely out to all of the monitoring of systems and et cetera, so that you can then fine tune to improve ratings because you can't really fine tune without knowing what you're you're actually doing um, in terms of its impact, its effects. So, yeah, I mean that that's you know that, that yeah you're just going to have to start doing that if it's not there it's going to have to start and neighbours will hopefully push that along. Yeah, I, I sort of I, I think I'm really um, optimistic around that. Just particularly, you know, in Australia there's such a strong I think monitoring and verification. Uh, 
culture of buildings, really tracking how much performance, um, uh, how much energy the building is actually using in operation. Yeah. Because, yeah. you, you know, I think going back to that sort of UK um, background, I mean, for our, for our non-UK audience, um, in the UK we have the misleadingly named Energy Performance Certificate, the EPC. Um, and what this is is a certificate sort of issued by a very uh, a, a regulated practitioner, um, somebody who does need to meet certain qualification requirements. Um, and that's issued upon completion of all buildings to reflect uh, as-built compliance with the UK building regulations. And that uh, EPC must be updated every 10 years, as well as after any uh, sort of refurbishment work. Um, and then I suppose for our UK audience, it's probably helpful to say as far as I'm aware, at least, there isn't a formal requirement for non-domestic buildings in Australia. Is that right, Nick? No, that's right. There's not. I mean, we, we do have the um, the NCC, which is the, the National Construction Code, which does have a, a section on energy efficiency, but it's not it's not um, like it's not what an EPC is. So it's yeah, we don't have that here. Yeah. Um, so I suppose then, given that that doesn't that isn't something that we have in the Australian market. Do you think this neighbors is embedded in the UK that there's still a place for EPCs? Um, I mean, uh, look, from my perspective, I, I think there is. Um, I mean, so the, the construction, the NCC here, like it, it, it does, like, like it does man, mandate certain sort of you know thermal performance requirements and energy performance so thermal performance requirements from the building fabric energy performance requirements from services and um, systems and all that sort of thing so it, it is um you know it, it's kind of pushing things in the right direction um so i mean if, if that if, if an epc has any of that effect over there i would say it's, it's still got use yeah um i mean i think the the real benefit that i've i've seen from epcs over here is that you sort of you do have to follow a very regimented uh, methodology, and that is it is a very formalised requirement and process, which does mean that you really you really can't just kind of fudge building code compliance over here. I'm not saying that's what's happening in Australia, um, but certainly having the formal certificate I think makes it uh, uh, eliminates the possibility as much as it's possible, I suppose. But yeah. then. At the same time, I think that's really driven the design for compliance culture over here, that there is just a, a single methodology that you sort of press the button and out of it comes. Mm -hmm. I guess, what do you, where do you think we can take that design for compliance culture and how, what do you think our steps are over here in the UK to really break out of that design for compliance culture and into the design for performance approach? Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. Um, I mean, it's it's a bit of a mindset thing. So it goes back to what I was previously saying about just understanding that what the you know the purpose of what you're doing with the neighbours prediction is you are trying to predict actual energy use. So you've got to you've got to think how is this building really going to be used? What's this, what are its functional requirements, and how is that going to actually reflect in reality? So yeah, it's and and then the the, the approach. So I guess you maybe you sort of leverage those skills you have from the kind of very. Um, or maybe also a rigid sort of approach to compliance with EPCs and you apply that sort of rigidity and sort of, um, I guess, quality approach, but knowing that what you're actually doing is predicting real energy use. So it's still, it's still a very, um, you know, a formal process, but uh, you're, trying to, you're trying to predict actual operation, um, not an idealised scenario. So uh, 
you know, there is still, there's, there's a guide, there's a handbook, there's a guide, I'm not sure if it's the handbook or the guide over there for how, how you model for neighbours uh, commitment agreements. So you still have to follow some processes there. So, you know, apply that, apply that sort of um, thinking to, to the processes within, but just know that the outcome you're trying to achieve is um, prediction of reality um, and not some sort of idealised process. And that's, I think that's probably the best thing you can do. Um, that yeah. makes a lot yeah. of sense. Yeah. And it's almost going back to that, that culture change of, um, moving out of, you know, I think it's it's tempting sometimes with particularly rating schemes to try and, you know, attempt to gain the outcome or if I just twiddle this little input here and I get a better outcome here, that's actually not yeah. the point. The point is just how is this building going to operate in operation? So if, yeah. you've, if you've forgotten something, then you've forgotten it. It's it, yeah. There's no... I mean, and that's that's the that's where sort of this all circles back to when you're saying you're talking about the monitoring and metering is you, you'll see it. It's, you're going to see the energy use in the end. It's going to be there, and if you've predicted it or not, it's in reality it's going to be there. So you know the proof is in the actual operations. And you know if you don't get it right, you'll learn it once, and then you'll probably never forget it. So there will there will be some um, you know there'll be a few missed bits and pieces here and there. I think. <laughs> Yeah, look, one thing I wanted to just ask you, though, Jen, is that you, like, so probably from, in terms of what Australia can learn from the UK a little bit, uh, so you said something in a discussion we had recently which kind of resonated with me a little bit, and that was sort of suggesting that maybe we can't really see the wood for the trees with the whole building versus base building side of things. So we're, you know, we're very much, you know, the neighbour scheme here is base building tenants and whole building, and you know, the, the biggest uptake is the neighbours' energy base building rating, where we don't really kind of consider the impact of the tenants, and we're only we're only like in the last year or so starting to do more tenancy ratings because they're becoming easier and cheaper to do, but it still has very little meaning and there's very little demand. So I just I probably just want, wouldn't mind kind of getting your thoughts on you know what you meant by that, and maybe if there's anything we can kind of pick up from your side of the world uh, that we're maybe not seeing here so clearly. Yeah, and I thought it was it was quite interesting sort of going back to the example you gave earlier about the laboratory and the office building because um, obviously I think from from the UK perspective a lot of a lot of building performance certification to date has been based on the display energy certificate which is whole building mm-hmm. what gets I think sometimes forgotten is that actually all of these rating schemes are just about comparing your building to a given benchmark so obviously, if you had the benchmark that was 90% office and 10% laboratory, then you'd be fine. It wouldn't really matter whether you excluded or included the laboratory. But obviously, because yeah. we are benchmarking against a scheme that is purely for offices, you do need to have that end-use separation. I think where it gets really messy in in offices, particularly going back to sort of that whole building versus base building versus tenant, is that obviously one one doesn't exist without the other. So in some ways it doesn't, it isn't as obvious to split the uses down that demise line. And especially in the UK where we have a lot more sort of uh, fully repairing and insuring FRI leases for buildings where essentially the tenant takes on the complete ownership, maintenance and and operation of the plant within the building. So I really think, and I think that in Australia there's been Potentially, I wouldn't say like a culture of gamification, but I would say that when we were looking at neighbours in Australia for base buildings, it was very much a process of, okay, how can I exclude the tenant? How can I exclude this from the tenant? And how can how can we make sure that the tenant doesn't do X, Y, or Z? When actually 
that energy use is still occurring. It's occurring in the tenant demise and sometimes in a lot being served by plant that is less efficient. So by taking that whole building viewpoint, the viewpoint of the display energy certificate, you are avoiding some of that energy use going missing. The downside yeah. is obviously that landlords only have a very low level of influence over tenant behavior and tenant um, operations. So by splitting the splitting along the demise line, you do you are rating people for what is in their control, and that means that you're incentivizing people to sort of take ownership and really improve. Yeah. I guess going back to that landlord and sort of tenant interface, how how in Australia do you make sure that sort of landlords minimise the risk of tenant interruption or, or vice versa? I don't think we're very good at it. I mean, I don't. I I know that um, some of the, like, I guess, the, like I'll say the better clients that we have, have more recently started talking about, um, like, they'll, they'll be the ones that have a good portfolio of highly rated neighbours base building offices, for example, and that they're now probably in the last, last year or two years, maybe, are talking about how they want to then sort of spread out this level of influence to their tenants. But I don't think they know what they actually are going to do. So it's like, yeah, yeah, we've got a good performing portfolio of buildings in terms of the aspect of those buildings that we can influence, the base building. Now we want to go and sort of help our tenants improve as well, which is, that's great thinking, but we haven't, like, they, we don't actually know what that means just yet. Like, so I don't, it's, it's we're kind of uh, novices in this space, I think, um, but there's, a, there's an awareness there. And I think that the point that you make about how, like a display energy certificate kind of captures everything and then just creates that awareness. It's like, well, you know, there's still all this other energy that's, you know, potentially being less efficiently, um, like the services are being less efficiently delivered. Like that, just the awareness is important. Um, but yeah, we're, like, we're, not, we're not particularly good at it. We've, I mean, there's green leasing that goes on. I mean, sometimes you'll see requirements and leases uh, for high-performing neighbours' base buildings that the tenants have to install, you know, equipment less than a certain watts per square meter and all that sort of thing. But I, I, that's, that's not, you know, that's not the solution. Um, but we're, we're thinking about it. It's, it's it, yeah, it's definitely becoming more topical here. Yeah. And I think, you know, looking at the leasing structure, I think it's specifying a watts per meter square is a really blunt instrument. And yeah. in particular, because most you, the average person in a, in a tenancy or somebody who, who would be signing a lease doesn't immediately resonate with a watts per meter squared figure. What does it actually mean? Mm. The, the thing I'm really excited about in the UK industry is if we can get tenancy ratings over here, because I think uh, in Australia there's been a lot of success with sort of saying, okay, we, we want to, you know, we're, we're marketing this building as a neighbour's five and a half, neighbour's six star, for example, building but that's backed by tenant leases that specify tenants coming into the building must achieve a five-star neighbours tenancy rating or sign. I think you can sign tenancy commitment agreements, can't you? Um, I'm not so sure you can, okay. actually. I don't, I don't think you can. I, yeah, because I don't think there's actually a protocol for for modelling a tenancy um, specifically out there at the moment. So, yeah, uh, maybe we'll have to get back to you on that one, but uh, my, my gut feel is there's not. Yeah, maybe that's a suggestion for uh, Neighbours Australia <laughs> as well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they look forward to hearing that from me, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that, that tenant and landlord interface is, is just going to become increasingly important, particularly as we start to look at more greenhouse gas emissions reporting, including Scope 3 uh, reporting, which would obviously be a really big thing. Um, Definitely. But I suppose 
I suppose sort of looking at the time, uh, maybe to close off the podcast, uh, mm. one final question for you, Nick. What should we in the UK focus on today? You know, if you were a developer um, or a project manager or a practitioner on an FM team or even a main contractor, where would you focus your efforts today? Is it about getting a really good simulation model? Is it about engaging the FM team a lot earlier, following soft landings framework, vetting your contractor more closely? I don't know. What do you think? Um, so my my tip on that would be um, if you know I'll, I'll, I'll put myself in the shoes of say a developer or like, like a managing contractor. You've, you've got to have if there's a neighbor's target that you're trying to achieve with a, a project. You've got you've got to have that sort of um, you know that that's an area of focus that should be front and center from the start of the project. So it's not it's definitely not something to park and leave for later. It's definitely not something to sort of pass off to someone to make, to maybe one consultant. It's it's a team thing that needs to be resolved as a team that all you know maybe many of your consultants and contractors need to be engaged in. And you need to sort of you need to have that on your list of you know your risk register. You need to be managing the risk of not achieving the target, and you need to be engaging with your team to sort of I guess, fulfill the role of achieving that target. So it's it's kind of put neighbors front and center as high as everything else that you you know would be kind of big risk on a project. And you know that, that's something you have to deliver. It's just not it's not an afterthought. It's not it's not a certificate you get with um without any effort. It does it does require thought and planning. And you know there's there's always the risk of not achieving it. Um, and I would say that it's it's usually a good idea to get a model done early on so that you can get the design review process started early so that you can get great feedback from someone like yourself, Jen, early on in the process to help influence the design if it needs to be influenced. You might not, you might have a great design, but yeah, I think it's just, just don't, don't, it, it should be important from the start of the project and you should be looking to manage that risk from the start. So that's, that's probably what I'd say. And I don't know if we've got time, but I'll maybe sort of quickly throw that back to you as well, Jen. Is there anything that you you'd probably want to tell tell the industry that they should be kind of focusing on if I haven't already covered it? Yeah, I mean I think you've I think you've pretty much covered the the number one for me. I think there's a lot of a lot of talk in the UK industry about how can I pass this risk on to someone else, be that a main contractor, be that a maintenance uh, contractor in operation. And actually that's not the point. Uh, everybody through the entire design process has a, has a share and has a role in that in that whole process and the achievement of the target. So this mm -hmm. idea of I want to put in place a contract that takes away the risk from me and passes that down the chain is just absolutely not the right way of thinking about it or the right way of going about it. And I suppose in that sense, I'd emphasize to, to everybody, to um, any practitioners out there, designers, uh, project managers, design managers, main contractors, subcontractors, um, FM teams, is really spend half an hour today and think, what can I do personally, me, the person, to make this building or this project perform better and take take that action as proactively as you possibly can. Spend, spend the time you might otherwise spend reading through your contract to work out who should be doing what and actually just take that step forward and make, make sure it happens. And I think that's a really big part of the culture in Australia and one of the really big reasons it's been so successful over there. 100%. Great. Fantastic. Um, so, so I suppose, um, should we wrap up there unless you have any final remarks, Nick? Yeah, um, that's, I think it's probably enough enough from me and um, definitely appreciate your, uh, your input, Jen, and your challenging questions and um, 
and I look, look forward to hearing from you how, how things go over there with this all starting up. And, and you know, I think it's an exciting prospect to be at the beginning of it all again, um, knowing what you know and knowing what it could lead to. So good luck. <laughs> Enjoy. Yeah, <laughs> no, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and obviously, thanks, thanks for your time this morning. And um, thanks to Bianca and the production team for um, putting together the episode for us. Um, so obviously, uh, if you haven't caught up with our Neighbours webinar from February, uh, the YouTube link will be um, in the webinar. It's on Kundal's Glo global YouTube channel. Um, and if you did enjoy this episode, make sure you subscribe for many more things that really matter from Kundal. Thanks, everyone. Bye. This is a podcast by Kundal, the first engineering consultancy to be certified carbon neutral by the Carbon Trust.